Hey, it's Amy Brown here to talk about St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. For 60 years, St. Jude doctors and researchers have helped push the overall childhood cancer survivor rate from 20% to more than 80%. But we need your help getting that number to 100%. And most important, your support means that families will never receive a bill from St. Jude for treatment, travel, housing, or food. Now, that peace of mind means so much. So join me in helping St. Jude in the fight against childhood cancer. Become a partner in hope and text Bobby to 785-833. That's B-O-B-B-Y to 785-833. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. You know, before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore and the new scripted audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the rise of outlaw country music and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision in her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. This is the year to stop overpaying for your family plan. So choose a straight talk wireless family plan. Unlimited data, talk, and text on a reliable 5G network. And you can get a new line starting at $25 per line per month for four lines, plus taxes and fees and no contracts. That's good decision making. Available at Walmart and on straighttalk.com. Family plan discount with four lines, all on the silver unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount. In times of traffic, your data may be temporarily slower than other traffic. Video streams at up to 480p. I went back to the lounge after class and I sort of like, think, 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 think. That seems like the note I'm singing. Tried to find a chord that went with it. You know, it's a really simple song. Took me the rest of the afternoon. I just cut the rest of my classes. But then I sort of like, oh, I, I wrote a song. I can play it. I can sing it. Yeah, I'm a songwriter. Episode 400. Mike and I have been talking for a while about the big special number of 400. Yeah, that's a lot. It's a lot, especially because this is a once-a-week show. Yeah. There's <laughs> a lot of episodes. We want to do something really cool. So it's really cool for me. I'm a massive Counting Crows fan. Just love them. My favorite band of all time. I love Counting Crows so much. Never met them. Seen them at concert many, many, many times. Never met Adam Duritz. And got to spend roughly an hour. Yeah. How long was this interview? 50 minutes. Dang. I don't even know if he thought he would stay 50 minutes. And I've listened to so many interviews because I'm such a big fan, I've never heard him be so generous with his answers and just sit and be fun and talk. And I was surprised as a fan, not at how cool he was, but it just how open he was. Yeah. So, and generous with his time. And this, this was a great, great deal for me because I am always worried that people that I love, like when I consume their art, that I won't love them after that. And I can't separate art from artist, but I don't want to. We had almost got this during COVID. He was going to come do a Bobby cast. Yeah. But somebody in his band got COVID, so they shut down anything with people. It's very disappointing for me, but I understood it. And then they were like, okay, he's doing a tour? Because he's playing the Opry House. It's been like 50 days. They're like, he's, he's going to come to the studio. And I was like, are you serious? And so you'll hear Amy and Eddie and stuff in this interview briefly because we're all sitting in here. And we played a, some of this on the radio show, but not all 50 minutes. But we want to put this up before the radio show. It's an hour long with Adam Durst. What are you going to say, Mike? Do you feel like now after meeting one of your heroes, you think it's okay to meet your heroes? I'm still hesitant and a little scared to do, but I even did it, right? Yeah. So, yes, but have expectations that 
your heroes are also just humans too. And there have been people I've met where I'm like, oh man, not as cool as I thought they were, but I still enjoy their music. So, and I talked to Adam Durrett about the four people that I've always wanted to meet. He's mm -hmm. one of them. But when I say I always wanted to meet it, there's part of me that didn't want to meet him because I loved the feeling and the relationship I already had with them in the band and all the times that I listened to them and places that were big in my life. So, I don't know. I think we should just hit it. A few clips in case you don't know who he is. And if you don't know who he is, just uh, stop listening to music forever. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to say it. Uh, Mr. Jones, here you go. You can do Accidentally in Love, the Shrek song. I mean, I love Long December. We talk a bit about Big Yellow Taxi, which is a Joni Mitchell song, which they had as a hidden track, and they put Vanessa Carlton on it later. But even songs like, the, the hits are like, round here. But like for me, I love songs that aren't the hits because if you're a, that's your favorite band, you can't have a hit as your favorite song. It's kind of the rule. Yeah. You know? Okay. Episode 400. Very excited. I hope you enjoy it. Here he is. Adam Duritz of the Counting Crows. You're here for a couple reasons. One, I have a Mount Rushmore of my favorite people in the world who I haven't met. And it is David Letterman. It is Steve Martin. It's Howard Stern and Adam Duritz. So three remain, but you check it off my list now. I've got all of those except for Steve Martin. You haven't met Steve Martin? No. <laughs> seen him, but... I've seen you on Letterman a bunch of times. Did you guys have a close relationship? Uh, he's a really shy guy. Um, he would come up and talk to me when we were on the show, and then he would he would say something like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm really glad you're here. Uh, it's, really, <laughs> it's really nice to have you. And then he'd walk off, and that's the first time we were on the show he came up and did that. I was sitting in the audience watching, and he came behind me, and... And uh, then this crew guy walks by and goes, wow, man, he's got to really love you. He, he won't talk to anybody. Oh, that was a lot. Yeah. And, and, but he was always really nice. Just, he just seems very shy. Um, and I'm not great at like the social thing either. So, Yeah, I'm very awkward when I don't have to be on. Like I, if I'm doing stand-up or doing this show, I'm a lot. But then when I'm not... I feel very just wallflower type because I feel like why would anybody want to hang out with me if I'm not doing what I'm celebrated at? So at times they're like, man, you're so odd. Or I have like social anxiety at times, but same situation. It sounds like with you as you're like a front man of this major band that sold millions and millions of records. But then are you like that when you're just in public as well? Uh, I mean, I'm still me, but I, I mean, the thing about being on stage is I, um, that's kind of where I'm supposed to be. I'm at, I'm most comfortable there because I, I know what I'm doing and uh, I, I kind of feel like I was born to do that. So when I'm on stage, I'm really comfortable because I'm doing the thing I'm best at life at, you know, best in life at. Whereas, you know, hanging out, talking to people, it's, it's not as easy. Um, yeah, I still wish I'd hung out with Steve Martin. <laughs> Howard well, I've known for 30 years. Howard I've known forever. Like know him, know him? Yeah, yeah. You like him? Oh, Howard's fantastic. He's a great guy. Is he like that too? Seems like he on, on air, he's big and bold and then off air, he's just like normal and Yeah, he's quiet. a lot shyer in real life too, but he's also like, you know, he's, he's funny. He's still himself. You know, he's, we used to, I, I met because a friend of mine runs this whole kind of physical medicine center, kind of a gym thing in, in New York. And uh, so I always went there to work out and, and Howard did too. 
so we like we had this 11 a.m kind of workout group with uh me and him our friend marco battaglia who was playing for the Bengals then he's a tight end for the Bengals, and uh and Matt Schneider, who was playing, uh, he was a defenseman for the Rangers, and the four of us would all work out with our friend Pat. Same weights? No, nah, different weights. Oh, I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had the big ones. Marco couldn't keep up. Yeah. Uh, for the stage for you, when did that become, you said you're good at it, were you naturally drawn to the stage to be a performer? Were you performing at seven, eight, nine years old? Yeah, it might have been showing off at home, but no, not really. We were just talking about this in there because uh, one of our managers uh, worked for Kiss for a while, and uh, I, I realized I'd never told my tour manager. Who, he's been my tour manager since 1994, but, you know, the when I was a kid, you know, I had Destroyer, the record, the Kiss record, and at one point I sang Beth to some girls behind Hebrew school, and the response was, good it's very good response and i thought oh yeah this is this is probably good for me and i started a band right after that like i was 13 i guess with some some friends uh and uh yeah but it was it was kiss and beth that's my first thing i sang that to some girls behind hebrew school and i was like oh shit yeah this is this is really good <laughs> Wait, you're just back there and you just start singing to them like just how how does that come about? Yeah, I don't remember. This is it I just was, was good. I was twelve, yeah. thirteen, okay. but at some point, it, like it, it really somehow I managed to work my way into it, <laughs> and uh, and the response was overwhelmingly positive, wow. and, and not just like oh that's good, but oh it's this is a good thing to do in front of girls, and they is, like it. Yeah, which yeah. Is, all you really need in life is find something really good to do in front of girls, and then you, you know life will pay off. Yeah, I'm still looking for that, that whatever it is that I do. That's uh -huh. cool. So yeah. with, with you and you, a lot of my friends that are, have been successful in music, they kind of went through different phases musically. Like I have one friend who's massive in country music now, but he was in like a metal band for a long time. And so he had went through all these different seasons. We'll call them that. Did you do that as a teenager, late teens, early 20s? Did you do music that wasn't really what we know you for now? Like were you ever in a thrash band? No, but I, funk bands, and but I don't know if they were funk bands. We just played a lot of different music. Uh, I mean, I grew up in you know, growing up in Oakland and Berkeley. Uh, we had some really good FM radio stations, K San especially, and they played kind of everything. Uh, you know, you could be listening to the Stones and then the Sex Pistols and then Willie Nelson and then some Miles Davis song. K San seemed to play everything, um, and I just thought that's what music was like. I, re I really just thought. This is all what it, it's everything. And uh, so, you know, especially growing up in Oakland, there's a lot, you know, P-Funk and Earth, Wind & Fire is really big, but there's a punk scene in San Francisco too. And uh, I just kind of listened to everything and sort of played anything. Some of the bands that played covers, we played covers by anybody. Um, but I was never into any particular scene. I was just kind of liked music, liked playing all of it you know, experimented with different kinds of stuff when I started writing finally. Um, but uh, I was all just kind of me. At 16, 17 years old, when, did you know you wanted to do, or you could even do music as a career? No, no. I, it was, I didn't write my first song until freshman fall term in college. Um, but as soon as I did that, like, 
you know, I think a lot of life is trying to figure out who you are and what you are. You're very unformed as a kid, you know, and I mean, basically you just do homework and try to meet girls. It's all that, you know, it's social life and homework. Um, but when I wrote a song, it was like a light switch clicking. I just, oh, I'm a songwriter. And, you know, and I was 18. I just, oh, I'm a songwriter. That's what I do in life. And, and then every day, all I did was write songs. Uh, was that song about your sister? It was, yeah. It was uh, called Good Morning, Little Sister. Um, you know, there was a lounge across the hall from my dorm room, and uh, there was a piano in it, and I was in, like, some class in college. And I start, My sister was home. She was 16. It's a tough time to be a girl. And uh, I just started writing a song about her, you know, kind of humming it to myself and writing lyrics on while I was in class. And I went back to my room, and I thought, you know, I wonder if I could figure out how to play this because I could kind of play piano. Not any really. lessons as a kid? I took piano lessons when I was a little kid, but I don't think I got much out of it. It was more that in that first band I was in when I was like 13, the guitar player taught me how to make a major and a minor chord. And once you can do something that sounds good, you can just kind of play, uh, sort of rudimentary. So I went back to the lounge after class, and I sort of like, ding, 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 ding. That seems like the note I'm singing. Tried to find a chord that went with it. You know, it's a really simple song. Took me the rest of the afternoon. Like, it would probably take five minutes to write it now, but it took the whole day. I just cut the rest of my classes. But then I sort of like, oh, I, I wrote a song. I can play it. I can sing it. Yeah, I'm a songwriter. It, I realized it right then, and then all I did was write songs after that for, you know, all the time. So were you naturally pretty good at music at hearing it and or were you just so driven to be good at it because you saw what the rewards could be like where do you kind of fall on that scale it's more the driven thing i'm not i'm not a good piano player i can't play by ear at all i got to kind of figure it out or just fumble it out um but it wasn't even so much the rewards except the reward of like oh this is who i am you know you kind of run around in life feeling things and not knowing where to put it feeling like you have things to say or like you have all this stuff to express, but you have no idea how to do that. You know, cause what are you going to be in school plays? Unless you write songs, either you're in a cover band or you're in school plays or something. It didn't, didn't really seem like there was a line of expression there. But then when you write a song, it's like, Oh, this is, I can take all this stuff in here and I can put it out here. You know, it's like you turn your liquid thoughts into something solid. And it, suddenly it's this place where you can express yourself. And I just did it all day, every day after that. Like I cut class a lot and I just, I couldn't get out of that lounge across the hall from my room. Yeah. I was going to ask if it was a distraction. Once you found what seemingly is the most positive thing that you had ever found that you loved writing music and creating music. And was that a distraction from school? And I guess it was because that's all you focused on or it felt like you were focusing on. Yeah. I mean, I, I did it all day, all the time. Uh, I just wanted to, con I don't write nearly that much now. Um, but back then I wrote like, con I couldn't stop. I couldn't get myself away from the piano. I just did it all day, every day. Um, just pumped out songs for a while there. I think it's like, you know, you just, suddenly I was defined. Like before any of my friends, I knew what I was. I mean, I fell behind again after that when they all got jobs and I <laughs> had no way to get, I didn't know how to turn this thing into something that could actually support myself. So there's, you know, years of landscaping and uh, construction work and 
dishwashing. I worked in a video store. You know, all through my 20s, I knew what I was before any of my friends, but I spent 10 years after that, you know, just doing everything I could to keep going while, while I tried to like figure out how to make something to that. Did you finish school? Uh, I didn't turn in my thesis. I'm missing one paper from Berkeley. So does that mean you're like a few hours, like credit short? Yeah. And one, why haven't you done class. the thesis? Why have you run the paper? Well, in my- AI, I'll write you one right now. All I got to do is get on chat GPT and knock yeah. it out. Oh, that's not going to work at Berkeley. Oh, that- <laughs> that's the best things department in the country. They'd catch that. No, I, you know what? In my mind, I've kind of written several theses and they've sold briskly. Yeah. Um, but I they, mean, I- they, they won't let you like write, write the paper though for that. You don't care to have the degree? No. I mean, look, I really respect my education. I, I Cal, I learned to be, I was an English major there. I learned to be a writer there. It was very hard. And I, a lot of what I am as a songwriter comes from that. Uh, so I have a lot of appreciation for it, but I didn't turn in my thesis. So I'm not sure I should have a degree. I mean, I am sure I shouldn't because I, I didn't, I didn't finish. You can write it now. Lunchbox, you relate to this? Yeah, it feels good, man. I, I feel like I've experienced life. And so He's I, short to one credit, like one class. And so I feel like, you know what I mean? Like we went out, we, we, we took what we learned and we made it something out of our lives. And so we, yeah, same we like really, yeah. yeah, no, we're in this together. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Clearly. <laughs> I mean, no I, I don't really have a problem with it. Parallel. I, I feel like, you know, there are people that did finish all their stuff and they got the degree. I have a lot of respect for my school. So, you know, they taught me a lot, but I didn't turn in the paper. So. I'm okay with not having the degree. It worked out for me. The degree's not that important. The education is. I mean, I, I, I don't think I'd be where I am without that education. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I have a, a world of appreciation for what I went through in school. Um, I wish they could have. I did get into a situation where once you start writing songs, it's very different, the mindset, than than writing essays. And, uh, and I, the songwriting started to bleed into how I wrote essays. And I had teachers... While I'm writing these very expressive, almost semi-poetic uh, essays, is going. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like you need, you need to write me a second paper. This is I got several incompletes where they then demanded I have to write a second paper to explain the first paper, and uh, that only got me in more trouble because somehow I was probably fairly obnoxious about the explanatory paper. Did you ever almost quit music though because you had to grind it out doing all of these? jobs like again mowing and that's what I had to do too I had to do a lot of the waiting tables did you ever almost quit yeah after my first real like adult band uh you know it's hard you're you're you play with your friends but you got to kind of argue with them you end up fighting over a lot of stuff it's part of being in a collaborative art form is a lot of fighting and disagreements and I felt like I got really separated from all my best friends and uh I got kind of turned off to sort of the reality. Like, look, when hobby is something you do for fun, like art is not fun. It's not supposed to be, it's work, but it's hard for people to realize that at first. Uh, and that's kind of something everyone who wants to be involved in art has to kind of go through is a moment where you sort of think at first you think, Oh, well, this isn't fun anymore. And so you don't either you, and you don't like it. And so if it's a hobby, you stop, but it, you have to kind of get over that hump and I went through that after that first band, you know, when it broke up and I sort of didn't like the taste of my mouth on it. I kind of went to Europe backpacking and uh, was going to try to cut, make a break and quit playing music. 
and I was going to come back and get on with my life. I was about 25, I guess. So you quit in your head, at least for a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And I went backpacking around Europe with some friends. But the night before we left, I got together with uh, the bass player from my old band, Marty Jones, actually, Mr. Jones. Um, and he took me to another friend of his, who's Dave Bryson, who's I started Counting Crows with. And we were, Dave had a little a studio and we worked on some music and came up with some stuff that was really good. Um, and, uh, and then I left for the trip. It was just kind of a fun night to do it. While I was over there, Emmer, uh, our guitar player, who's been my best friend for all these years, we lived together back then. Uh, he had, he was, he had joined Camper Van Beethoven. Uh, and they were on, I got a letter from him that he was on tour with 10,000 Maniacs. You know, who's huge right then. They were getting ready to play the Greek theater. In like Berkeley. Natalie Merchant. Yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, I just thought, screw this, man. I, like, <laughs> I can't believe he's playing the Greek theater and touring with 10,000 Maniacs. I, I got to get back and start a band. And I started, decided to go back. Let's take a quick pause for a message from our sponsor. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots. And Tacovas is your next stop before attending your next concert. Tacovas has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring. You're talking about men's boots, women's boots, um, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tacovas boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition, timeless style, always on trend. And Tacovas has first wear comfort, little to no break-in period. Like it's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, direct consumer pricing keeps the value on your feet, the money in your pocket. So stop by your local Tacova store. Have a complimentary drink. Shop the new styles. You like the smell of leather or no? I love it. Yeah. That's what the whole store basically is. Fresh leather. Yep. Friendly staff. Or like the smell of staff? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm sure they smell good there. Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. What a gift, too. Regular live music and events. There is no in-store experience like this. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tecovas.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S. Yeah. Yeah. Tecovas.com. Find your new favorite pair of boots today. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer shaped the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed as the Boar's Nest, Sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, that's where they would spur each other and tap into something bigger and something realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Backrack as Shel Silverstein and T.J. Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer, and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. Hey, it's Bobby Bones. I just want to say thanks to everybody who has stepped up for the kids at St. Jude. St. Jude's been leading the way in the world's best survival rates for some of the most aggressive forms of childhood cancer. Your support means that families never get a bill from St. Jude for treatment or travel or housing or food so the families can focus on helping their child live. And that really hits home for me because I've been to St. Jude many times. I've hung out with the kids, played music for the kids. I was in the hospital a lot as a kid. Now, I didn't have cancer, but if it wasn't for people stepping up, 
I don't know that I would have been able to go and stay in the hospital and be taken care of. So that's why we do this, take care of others. You can help St. Jude stop childhood cancer by becoming a partner in hope. When you do this, you'll get this awesome new This Shirt Saves Lives shirt. So join all the doctors and researchers, you know, and me in this fight and just text the word Bobby to 785-833. It's only six numbers, but text the word Bobby to 785-833. And we're back on the Bobbycast. So you mentioned Marty Jones. That's Mr. Jones. You guys kind of imagining what fame is like or what celebrity is like. How long did you write that song before that actually happened? Oh, um... A while. I mean, I'm, Mr. Jones is from sort of the middle version of Counting Crows. It was probably about 1990, 91, something like that. And so did you guys write it like, man, this would be awesome, or this is going to happen? We, we really can see this happening to us. Uh, no, I mean, <clears throat> Marty's dad, David Serva, is one of the few Americans. He had left America and gone to move, move to Madrid and he's one of the few American guitar players to ever make it in this flamenco scene in Spain. He's a brilliant flamenco guitar player, and he had a huge career in, uh, in Madrid, which is pretty rare. And he came back to America at one point uh, for a visit, and he played some shows with his old flamenco troupe in the city, in the Mission of San Francisco. And uh, so we went to see them one night, and then we all went out drinking afterwards and he got pretty wasted. And we ended up in this one bar, the New Amsterdam on Columbus Street. And, uh, you know, we were sitting at the bar and there's all these really beautiful flamenco dancers and we're not really getting anywhere with them. And in the corner of the bar, I'm looking over and Chris Isaac's uh, drummer, Kenny Dale Johnson, is in the corner at this booth with like three girls sitting there with him. And I'm just thinking, man got to get our shit together man because like if we were rock stars it would be a lot easier to talk to women <laughs> everything would be better you know it'd be kind of great you know? i just thought that was kind of funny the thought of it because like you know you it's not just because of girls in a corner you know you dream about things like if you're going to write songs you dream about being able to do that with your life and support yourself and you know we we're spending this evening with this flamenco troupe and david serva his dad is like a famous guitar player over in spain and Kenny's in the corner and you know it's just what we wanted to do with our lives plus the girl thing but it also occurred to me how silly that is it's like nothing like that solves all your problems in life it just doesn't work that way you know it may be great for some things but it's not going to fix who you are um and, and I got home at night and I was sort of thinking about like how the whole thought process was so funny to me and I, and I wrote the song did was it one of those that fell out like yeah the, pretty much really I mean, I don't know, you know. Well, anything. Wrote it all that night. Anything in front, in front of five hours. I was almost like falling out. Yeah, I think most of my songs back then were probably less than five hours. I'd get real determined and just sit there and do it until it's done. Whenever I think about me in college and those really formative years, for me listening to music, I probably listened to more than any other body of music, the Across the Live Wire, you guys' live album. I mean, I could tell you, now my favorite band, uh, Counting Crows. I can do every even spoken part of that. You know, some people have movies, some people, and for mine, it's that. And even at the end, I like to think Dog's Eye View, you know, you're doing the whole, the river, it's, 
So, but I listened to that so much that if you were to say, what's the music you listened to in those formative years that made you musically who you are today? If I ask you that question, what did you listen to so much at 18 to 22 or 23? You're like, yep, that's what reminds me of those years. I listened to a lot of REM, uh, U2 probably at the time. Uh, still probably listening to a lot of Jackson 5. That's my first record. I don't think I've really stopped listening to that. Roxy Music around then too. Jay Giles Band, P-Funk. I don't know. It's hard to remember it right at that one time. I was thinking of uh, U2 and uh, R.E.M. because I, I specifically remember, there's a few things in my mind that are needle drop records where I literally remember when you put the needle on the record and how it started. And I have very clear memories of like being that freshman year in college and listening to Chronic Town, that first R.E.M. EP, and uh, uh, War, putting the needle down and hearing Sunday Bloody Sunday. Like, I, re I remember those two really vividly. And I remember going to the Roxy Music concert right around then, that last tour. You ever see Jackson 5? Yeah, that's my first concert, too. Do you when remember it? Or do, were you told a lot about it? No, vaguely. I was probably about six. It was a rodeo in Texas. Um, and they played at it. I went one day and saw the Jackson 5. My sister went the next day with my parents and saw Sonny and Cher. I, I would the rodeo's still doing that, too, by the way. Same kind of deal where it's somebody yeah. different and awesome every single day. Yeah, I mean, I... I'd have been happy with either one of those, but the Jackson 5, you know, that was... I have vague memories, but I, I'm sure they're really mixed in with TV clips of the Jackson 5. You know, I'm sure it's not really a memory because it's a long time ago. Now, if you get famous, there's all the social media that comes at you. Um, and I've had different smaller-ish type events where it's just like, wow. But when you blow up in the 90s and 2000s and fame is not able to get to you through those means... How does fame get to you if you're always on the road moving around? Is it just crowds? Is it just people? Well, it, you know, it's weird. We'd been on the road for a while before it happened, really. And it had been building. You know, we played Saturday Night Live in January of 94, and we weren't even in the top 200. I mean, Mr. Jones was a kind of a hit on the radio, but it, it wasn't making any impact anywhere. The record, like I said, it was 214 or something. Uh, but we played Saturday Night Live, and it jumped 40 spots a week for five weeks. And we ended up in the top, I don't know, 13, then six, and then two for the next two years or so. But uh, I didn't really see, you know, we were on the road on our own for a while at Christmas, and we seemed to be a kind of a hot indie band for a little bit. And then we went back to opening for Cracker. And then in April, we went to Europe for our first European tour, and we were gone for the month of April. Um and we flew back from Europe and landed in New Orleans right before Jazz Fest. And I'd been going to Jazz Fest for years, so I'd spent a lot of time in New Orleans. As a fan? Yeah, watching? Just, Got it. Yeah, because we weren't before the band, really. Um, this was my first time at Jazz Fest after the first record was out. And I went to the festival the first day after we got there and got mobbed. And I, I, the things that had been building that spring and winter had happened. It had kind of all coalesced while we were in Europe. So I didn't realize it. Were you surprised by the mobbing? Yeah. <laughs> Scared the crap out of me. It like just it's like, like when someone waves at you and you wave back and you realize there's somebody behind you they're waving at? Yeah. Like somebody they're running to them? Somebody wanted a picture and an autograph or something. And then the crowd just gathered and gathered and gathered and gathered and, and didn't stop. And then later that night we played Tipitina's and, you know, fits about 800 to 1,000 people in Tipitina's. And there were 2,000 people outside on the neutral ground in the street. They kind of had to close off the street. And uh, 
we went outside after the show. They had to open, they opened like they had these wall doors to slide out, I think, and they opened them up so the crowd outside could hear too. We went outside to play a couple songs acoustically for them after the show, and, and it was just massive. And, and uh, that's when I realized, like, it had happened while we were in Europe. And so, whatever buildup there was going to be, we missed it. And it just, we just landed in this thing. Isn't that crazy? It was really weird. I mean, that the next, you know, few months were very strange. I remember being on tour and being in Birmingham and having a day off and deciding there's like a movie theater about four blocks from the hotel. And I walked down and I was watching this movie. There's no one in the theater but me. It was weird. It was like an afternoon matinee or something. And this guy comes walking down the aisle and then walks up the row and sits next to me. And I was like, hey. And the whole like, empty theater says right yeah. next to you. <laughs> and he said, hey, uh, I'm a really big fan. I was like, uh, thanks, man. He said, do you mind if I sit here? I'm like, look, I'm, I'm just trying to watch a movie. If you don't mind, I just I just want to watch a movie. you know." And he got up and left. And about 45 minutes later, saw a guy come down the aisle and come down the row to me again. And I was like, God damn it. And, and I, but it wasn't the same guy. It was the guy that was working the concession stand out there. And he said, hey, are, are, you, are you in Counting Crows? And I said, yeah. And he goes, listen, uh, I don't know what's going on, but there was some guy in here before. And for the last half hour, he's been on the, the payphone in the lobby calling people. And there's a huge crowd outside. You know, if you want to get out of here, there's like a door at the bottom, like a alley exit. And I said, yeah, thanks, man. And I, I snuck out the alley and walked down the street and then, I heard this noise behind me and I turn around. There's this massive crowd of people out the front of the theater and they all start running. And I, I ran, I like just ran down the street, got to the hotel, like ahead of this crowd. It, just, it was just a little while after Jazz Fest. You didn't even have the infrastructure to be famous because it all happened while you were gone. You didn't know you landed, it's here. And you didn't have security. You didn't have anything to make, make sure you were even safe. No, never really got any of that stuff either. We never really, I had a lot of friends in bands who had security. We never really got security out with us or any of that stuff. It just seemed like you could sort of avoid it. Uh, it didn't seem to make sense to me walking around with some huge guy next to you. It, it, it seemed to invite more attention than anything else. We, I never really got into that. Um, even now at the over the hill age. Uh, now, I mean, I don't know. I never really did the security thing, but yeah, I mean, I was just completely unprepared. But there's the truth is everybody's unprepared. There's no way to be prepared for that because it's just like everybody start. It's not like you really do anything. Everybody else just starts acting really weird, and there's no way to prepare for that. It's just like waking up on Mars. You know, you could you'll get used to the gravity after a while, but it takes a bit. What's the best Counting Crow song ever, in your opinion? I don't know. Your opinion? It's a very vague, open question. But what comes to mind first? Well, I think Palisades Park is probably the thing I'm proudest of but I also think that Long December is a perfect song um, Long December is the only song that I've never not wanted to play like I don't I'm happy to play that every night I have been happy to play that every night I don't think I can say that about any other song there's no other song we play every night um, but I never mind playing Long December there's something perfect about it and timeless and I'm really proud of like the Palisades Park was really hard to write and it's a pretty epic thing. Uh, I'm really proud of it. It's complicated. It's a, a height of my art form. Um, 
but Long December is perfect. Did you feel that way when you finished Long December? Yeah. It almost, more than any other song, that one kind of wrote itself. It just felt like I knew where to go with the chords. I knew exactly what it was supposed to sound like. The entire song was written and recorded in under 24 hours. Um, it just, that's like take six. Do you no write, overdubs. Do you write melody or lyric first, or how does your brain work with music? Because you know, a lot of my friends will like, I have this idea, this is the lyrics. Well, f- Some of my friends will just go, and they'll just attach the words after they do the melody. What is your process? I've never written lyrics first for a song. Always melody first. Or music first. Um, it usually starts with either the music's there first or the music and the words come at the same time. Um, but yeah, I've never written lyrics first because I, I don't think I'd be able to. Like to me, there's nothing without the music. So the lyrics kind of are born out of the music. So like when you wrote Along December, unless you did it at the same time, you, you know, dah, piano's playing. And you don't really have you're just, it's just music and then you back listen to it and you're then you attach I think I just did that at the same time. I got the I mean I may have written once I had the music down, written the the rest of the words, but I'm I think I got that verse right there. I'm a super fan. You probably can't tell like I'm so cool right now and like just no, it's chill a, and I'm awesome. You know, just cool. Plain and cool, right? Right, guys? Yeah. You ever weirded out by yes, super fans? Man. You ever weirded out by Never people seen. that are too fan too fan of you? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, I thought, well, that's why I'm playing it cool, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm playing it cool. Well, also, it's like, I kind of feel like I always want to tell people, you should listen to some other stuff too. Because <laughs> there's, I mean, for me, I love music. It's been my whole life. I've, I've, I spent, you know, the first half of my life as a, you know, the first 20 years as just a fan of everything. I just love music. And then I started making music, which is great too. And I remain someone who's obsessed, lo- geekily loves music. And I, I just want to shake people sometimes and go, nah, yeah, this is great. I love my records, but you should check out these guys. These guys are great. And these guys, and these guys, and these guys, and there's just so much. I, I don't think I could spend all that time listening to one thing. I just, I, and I love, I think our band is great, but it's mostly just that I, I kind of want to like sit them down and say, you seem really great. <laughs> you obviously have great taste. You like us that, you know, you should check out these guys. Yeah. I had a real problem with, and I loved hard candy, your album, but I'd have to skip to the, like you go to the hidden track. I got to hold that, the forward button down on the CD player that finally would get to it finally come up and it would be. Uh, the Johnny Mitchell song. Oh, yeah. Big Yellow Taxi. It was the hidden track when I first bought the record. And I was like, I don't know about this song. This because any of my other friends are lame and they don't spend the time holding that button down. You got to hold, you can't push it. You got to hold it like middle so it, it skips or you have to just let it play forever to get to it. And it was like, boom, and it starts. And I'm like, you guys don't even know what you're missing. I'm cooler than you. Boom. And then it comes out as a single and you had a Vanessa Carlton. And then I remember the video, she wasn't even with you guys. And I, I was hurt. Which part? That she wasn't with you in the video because they probably recorded it two different times. She was probably on tour. We were on tour. Yeah. I just, I need, I don't know how I felt about that. Why, why, how did that come about? Because I felt as a hardcore fan that I was the one that knew the secret that nobody else knew and then everybody got let in on the secret. We had kind of this hip hop acoustic version that we did of uh, Big Yellow Taxi Guy. I couldn't remember the name right then. Uh, and then we wanted to try and do like some remixes of it. And so we went and try and find some people like Pharrell, uh, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. I really wanted to do it with Jimmy Jam, uh, but 
they were busy when we were doing it. We, they couldn't do it right then. You know, we were. It was like a an acoustic track we recorded. It was just going to be hidden on the end of the record. And when we decided to do a remix version of it, uh, it kind of came sort of late. Um, Ron Fair, who was uh, an A and R guy at Geffen then, but had also just finished producing uh, Vanessa's first album, and uh, I had heard some of it because he had mixed it with Jack Joseph Puig right before we mixed Hard Candy. So Jack was playing me stuff from it and I thought it was really good. Um, but we had to leave for like some tour in Europe right after we were done with that. And Ron called me and said, Hey, uh, I have an idea for, I know you're trying to find someone to remix this song. So you were actively looking for someone else to be on the track. Yeah. Cause we wanted to do not someone to be on it, but we wanted to do a remix of it. So we'd never got to do that kind of stuff. Like working with hip hop producers to take our music and just change it and do something different with it. Um, and Ron called and said, I have a really good idea for this. Would you mind if I sent it to you? Could I try and do this? And I said, sure, go ahead. And he sent it to me and it was actually really good. So I said, yeah, let's work on this. Um, so he started doing it, but I had to leave to go to Europe for about, you know, a little while before we had a tour in Europe before the record was coming out. So we were out of the country and uh, Ron met us in London when he'd almost finished it. And we, we laid down some more tracks. I changed the ending and sang some stuff on it. Um, and then we wanted to have some woman sing on it as well. And we were talking about Nora Jones. We were talking about some different people. I suggested Vanessa because I knew I couldn't be there. And I thought it would be pretty intimidating for someone to sing on one of our tracks. And I didn't want someone to do some kind of flat, boring version of it. But Vanessa had just finished doing a record with Ron. So I thought she'd be really comfortable in the studio with him, even though she was a kind of an unknown artist. I just said, why don't you do it with Vanessa? This that girl. song had a thousand miles hadn't hit yet. I don't think it had. The record wasn't out yet because they were mixing the same time we were. So maybe it had just come out. I'm not sure. But it wasn't the monster hit. No, she. I don't think anyone knew who she was. I just thought I need to find someone who will be comfortable without me being there. So they'll let go and really sing. And I knew she could really sing. Um, I was just afraid someone would be too shy and they would do bland stuff. And, and so I suggested this woman he'd just worked with. Uh, so he went and did that, but then Geffen got on this. They, they needed to turn the record in right away and they didn't have time to finish that. So we, the first, it was not supposed to be a single. It was supposed to be a single like a year later. So that's why we put it as a hidden track. So we put it out on the first pressing and uh, hidden. And the idea was it, after we go through all the other singles on a record, if we want to put out Big Yellow Taxi, there'll be another pressing. We'll actually list it on the record. It won't be hidden anymore. Um, then two weeks notice came along the movie and said, we want to use this song in our film and we want to put it out as a single. We'll make a video. We'll do all this stuff. And sort so the song came out long before it was supposed to. The problem with that is it was still a hidden track on the record. So no one knew it was there. Except so, for me who got mad that my secret was not put out. You're the only yeah. one. You should have told everybody. Yeah. Cause the problem was find out. What'd you say? How did you, how did you know Bobby that it was a, there was a hidden track? Because I listen to every freaking second of the whole album over mm -hmm. and over again. It's and it says the time remaining on it. Yeah, it's like I just held it down to get to the end of the track and then it would start. I mean, the idea for me was always that people forget your CDs on and that it would just like surprise them. You know, uh, well, the problem was the song came out and it was a massive hit, but it, it didn't do anything for the record because it was still hidden. So people would come to the store and they didn't buy hard candy because it's not on the record. 
you know, so it, it was actually, I get why Geffen was so excited about having the movie to promote it. And they were really in a rush to put out another single, but it sort of backfired on them because backfired on all of us. Cause it didn't do anything for the record. <laughs> it was a massive hit that did nothing for our record at all because no one knew it was, it was still, yeah. I mean, it was supposed to be out a year later when it wouldn't have been hidden on a different pressing and Vanessa would have been on it by then and all that stuff. But uh, none of that happened. All right. Got five questions left. The Shrek song, which is how a lot of kids would know you accidentally in love. Was that written purposefully for that movie or was it a song that you guys, or that you had already had somewhat and thought this will be right. Let's, you know, turn it into that. How'd that come? No, that was written for the movie. I, I got a call about doing it. I went over to, uh, you know, DreamWorks, Amblin, Spielberg studio there. And I sat with the director and Michael Austin, I think. And they showed me basically the whole movie scene by scene. And the ones that weren't finished, they showed me storyboards for it. And we talked it through and uh, they showed me the scene they wanted and kind of told me the flavor. Uh, there was a Weezer song on there originally just as a temp track, I think. Uh, so I took home a little DVD of it and went to work on it and wrote it for the movie. When you watched it, was Chris Farley, the voice of Shrek, before Mike Myers, when you saw it? Because he died, obviously, and they had to change it. No, it was Mike Myers then, was, I'm pretty sure. Um, I thought that was a really great thing. I mean, there are very few things in our culture that are timeless. You know, like, not much lasts generation after generation, but, like, my grandmother saw Snow White. My mom saw Snow White. I saw Snow White. If I have kids, they'll see Snow White. I mean, the one thing in our culture that is multi-generational that lasts forever is a really good animated movie like that. You know, that stuff is timeless. And it's a chance to be part of something. I mean, you have Miles Davis covering Someday My Prince Will Come. That It spans all cultures. Uh, I thought that was, as soon as I got the offer, my whole thought was, this is exactly what I want to do. This is like being on a really good Disney film. It's, it was obviously really good. You know, I saw it. I thought it was fantastic. You know, and also as a chance to, you know, get new fans who are younger. And, you know, uh, I, I was so excited to do that because it'll be there forever. And I'm really proud of the song. And I think the movie's fantastic. The Bobby Cast. We'll be right back. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots. And Tacova's is your next stop before attending your next concert. Tacova's has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring. You're talking about men's boots, women's boots, um, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time honored tradition, timeless style, always on trend. And Tacova's has first wear comfort, little to no break in period. Like it's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, direct consumer pricing keeps the value on your feet, the money in your pocket. So stop by your local Tacova store. Have a complimentary drink. Shop the new styles. You like the smell of leather or no? I love it. Yeah. That's what the whole store basically is. Fresh leather. Yep. Friendly staff. Or like the smell of staff? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm sure they smell good there. Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. What a gift, too. Regular live music and events. There is no in-store experience like this. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tecovas.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S. Yeah. Yeah. Tecovas.com. Find your new favorite pair of boots today. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How do the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer shaped the sound and soul of country music as we know it today. 
despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed as the Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, that's where they would spur each other and tap into something bigger and something realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Backrack as Shel Silverstein and T.J. Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer, and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. Hey, it's Bobby Bones. I just want to say thanks to everybody who has stepped up for the kids at St. Jude. St. Jude's been leading the way in the world's best survival rates for some of the most aggressive forms of childhood cancer. Your support means that families never get a bill from St. Jude for treatment or travel or housing or food so the families can focus on helping their child live. And that really hits home for me because I've been to St. Jude many times. I've hung out with the kids, played music for the kids. I was in the hospital a lot as a kid. Now, I didn't have cancer, but if it wasn't for people stepping up, I don't know that I would have been able to go and stay in the hospital and be taken care of. So that's why we do this, take care of others. You can help St. Jude stop childhood cancer by becoming a partner in hope. When you do this, you'll get this awesome new This Shirt Saves Lives shirt. So join all the doctors and researchers, you know, and me in this fight and just text the word Bobby to 785-833. It's only six numbers, but text the word Bobby to 785-833. This is the Bobby Cast. We talked about before you came in the tour, and we'll get back to that in just a second. And I, I've seen you a bunch. Eddie and I went to your show when you were here last time. We were the ones who were cheering. Standing no, up the I whole heard, time. I heard we were, we were just standing up going, yeah, yeah, that was us. So for a long time, every show we would go to, it seemed as you would change melodies of, your, of the hits. Is it because you played them so much and you were like, I just can't keep singing it over and over again? No, I think I did that from the beginning. I think it always seemed like they just seem like living things. You know, I feel like the songs are, you know, it's it's a, it's like a coffee filter and you pour your life through it every day. You know, it, they're all different. I mean, and your my perspective on Mr. Jones when I wrote it as something I was like aspirational about is certainly different than my perspective now having actually lived everything in that song for 30 years. Oh, that's weird. Yeah, you're right. You know, I mean, and that's true of all the songs because you they're just things you felt and feel. And so, you know, you experience them a little differently every day. I always felt like this stuff was just, I do think it's why I'm not bored because I, I've never really, someone said to me a while ago that we should re-record all of our records like Taylor Swift did because then we'd have all the publishing and we wouldn't have to pay, not publishing, we'd have all the record rights. We wouldn't have to pay the record company anything on it. But I, I have no idea how those records go. I haven't sang them that way since I recorded them that way. You know, they're kind of, I don't think we'd be very good at that. I thought the last show though was pretty, I felt like there was an effort to like be right. Or maybe I've just heard you sing live so many times that I just feel like that's normal or natural. I didn't feel like there was a lot of change. Did you, Eddie? No, I didn't. I felt like it was, it was awesome. Yeah. And when you play a song like Einstein on the Beach, which I only had like a bootleg version of it, is it weird that everybody knows the song? I don't know. I have, that's a song I played, we played once in concert I mean, it's basically a demo from before we were a band. It was never even attempted for the record. We played it once in concert at this little club in San Francisco, screwed it up, and never played it again. That's it? I don't think it's ever been played since that first time. Yeah, it's. A, I think it's a clever song with great melodies, but I've never loved it. It doesn't do anything for me, like, inside. 
So uh, I, I, I like it a lot as a fun, clever. It was me trying to write a pop tune. It was like an exercise. But I've never, I've never played it again. That's almost your Radiohead creep. Well, they played Creep way more times than we played. <laughs> but forever, never, like, we're not doing <laughs> yeah. it. So, okay, look, I'm going to mention the tour again. Um, I mean, in so many of the cities that we're on, I'm going to read some of these off, but everything from, you know, Syracuse, Boston, there's so many shows. Raleigh, obviously the Nashville show you're doing here, and you go to countingcrows.com to see all the shows. New Orleans, I mean, it's all of these cities that we're in, you guys, it's an excellent show, but it just seems like it's so much on the road. And when I, if I tour, when I tour, I get to go do Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then I come back home and I get to do this job. You ever been on the road so much? You're like, why do I even have a house? Well, I know why I have a house because I'm on the road so much. It's really good to have a place to come home to. Uh, I think the, the weekend thing would be fantastic. That's what Taylor Swift is doing. She's playing weekends. I think that sounds like wonderfully relaxing. But we're not playing stadiums, you know. We can't do that because we can't, we can't afford to do that. I also like. I spent a lot of my life on tour. I, I love playing shows. I love, you know, the the people I know best in my life, my band and my crew. A lot of the same people have been there for thirty years, you know, and that's like family, you know. I mean, I, I'm I'm happy in that life. Uh, it's exhausting for sure. But well, it's, it's, it's a job, you know, it's, it's work. But it's definitely pretty satisfying. I mean, look, I was a kid. Look, I was, like I said, singing Beth to some kids behind school, it's a pipe dream at that point. It, it is actually how I've managed to support myself in my life. And even after the pipe dream silliness, after I wrote my first songs, I spent 10 years in the clubs, you know, like really not knowing if, if I was going to be able to take care of myself. And I, I've been able to, and not just myself, but a whole group of people that work with us. I, I guess I just, I'm very satisfied with it and proud of it. And yeah, I, I don't know. It, it's, uh, there are, uh, with anything, there are just times when I'm exhausted, like when I just would rather be home. But it's also a life I'm really used to, you know, and I, I still love playing shows. You know, I really do. County Crows, Banshee season tour with Dashboard Confessional, which he's coming in a couple days. I'm big, Chris? Yeah. Yeah, we were talking. He's, he's, uh, he told me he's coming in like a week or something. Yeah. yeah. I was talking with him last night. He's coming up to visit me in about a week. Me and Chris and his wife, my girlfriend, uh, Emmer, our guitar player, and somebody else, we're all going to see Taylor Swift in New York together. They're coming up to stay with us. And, Do you have to pay for those tickets? Yeah. You... They didn't give you those tickets for free? Look, I got tickets. I'm fine. I got tickets. You're just happy you got it to buy tickets? Look, I, I understand. It's a business too, you know, especially at that level. It's like you can't be giving out tickets to everybody because it's just too hard after a while. I, I get that. But I'm happy to support. <laughs> Although, I, I, I'd still like to play weekends and be that successful. We've never gotten to quite be that <laughs> successful. It does seem like a good life. It's uh, 56 dates. It is kicking off June 13th. You can go to countingcrows.com. A uh, quick note, whenever you did the, the last EP, the Butter Miracle, I liked it when it came out all at once. I was like, this is the longest song I've ever heard because the whole thing came out and it was all just connected. And then later, it all, and, but I remember calling Eddie and going, there's a 20-minute song out. You've got to <laughs> listen to it. And he's like, really? And then I called him back. I was like, wait. Apparently it was all just tracks. I like one 20 minute song. Let's commit to it now. 
Well, it is. It's like it's four songs, but they flow together. Yeah, but all of it was so long. It just felt like a twenty-minute song. It was. It's awesome. supposed to feel like a twenty-minute song. I mean, in a good way. I was trying to do something like the second side of Abbey Road or the uh, Wild, the Innocent, the, that first side of that. Uh, I just, I just wanted to write something that really flowed that way. It's pretty cool in concert too. It works. I mean, I wasn't even sure it would work. I wrote it to work, but until you're done recording it and you get it all together, I didn't know if it was going to work. That's the most satisfied I've ever been was the, when we put it all together and it worked as, as when the suite worked, I was about as happy as I've ever been about anything creative. You ever go back and hear an old track and go, man, sonically, I wish I would, I would have done it a different way. The, The only things that do that for me a little bit on the first album, the first album has a little bit of a sheen to it that I don't always, I love those songs. And I think some of them got better playing them live. All the other records and stuff, I like exactly how it sounds. The first album, which I know is everybody's favorite, but uh, and I love the songs and the work we did on it. It's just some of the stuff I didn't know enough about making records then is my first record. And uh, a little bit of that one I think is better. Those songs got better live and I, I learned how to sing them a little better after that. The rest of the records, no, I love the way it all sounds. Everything. Are you a loser if you wear an artist shirt to their concert? Oh, no, I don't think so. I don't either, but no. some, some people think you're a big loser if you do that. Just yeah, really. it looks really bad. Yeah. You look like an idiot when you do that. I don't like, know if you should be wearing your own shirt at your concert, that, although my tour manager is constantly saying to me, no, if you wore that stuff on stage, we'd sell, <laughs> we'd sell more merch. <laughs> but no, I think, you know, you kind of got to, don't you? I mean, you're going to go there, you're going to buy agree. a shirt, and you put it on. Yes. I don't know. It's been a while since... No, I know I go to concerts and wear band shirts. I, I went to Gang of Youth a little while ago. I was definitely wearing a Gang of Youth shirt, for sure. There you go. It's over. Yeah. That's over. Eddie, question before we go. Okay, Adam, so I saw you in Houston. I mean, this was probably early 2000s. And speaking of security, we snuck our way back in there, and we made it to your meet and greet. Ouch, more And And so, but on the way to your meet and greet, I saw... um, We had a meet and greet? You did. You you were playing with Live. It wasn't him, dude. Somebody tricked you. Oh, before the show. Before the show. Yes. Okay. And and I saw a really big dude, and you're like, this guy's not normal. Who is this? It's Dennis Rodman. And he was back there. What was that like and who like has just come to one of your shows where you're just like this is crazy i never knew he was a fan dennis oh this is that's like 99 that's a while yeah, ago. yeah yeah dennis was good friends with the guys in live and so i knew him through them and he had his thing like rodman tv back then and it was like really early internet kind of thing that he had where he he had a bus and a bunch of strippers and he would drive around the country filming like internet content and uh it was pretty wild and he he would like, he toured with us for a while. Like he came out to visit live <laughs> and then they had their own bus. So they just traveled around with us for a while, like coming to shows and hanging out. I mean, Dennis is a fantastic guy. He's amazing. He, you know, he's really different. I kind of love how unique he is and he can be kind of like brash, but also kind of sensitive. And uh, I, I always, I haven't seen him in a long time, but I loved that guy. He was just wild and fun. You know, we'd go out and do stuff, uh, go to bars. He loved to go to strip clubs. So we do that sometimes. Went to uh, one in Atlanta once, like the Cheetah. And he got in an argument with a car in the parking lot. And what, what, uh, say that again? He got an argument with a, well, he got an argument with a guy, but the guy had a car and the guy tried to drive the car at Dennis. So Dennis just punched the car. Got it. Wow, 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 wow. <laughs> punched out the car, a moving car. I will say it was a very impressive moment. I was like, it just doesn't seem like he's going to win that confrontation. But I got to tell you, he did. Punched the car. And he won. 
And it, you don't, you rarely see that. But I, yeah, I mean, Dennis, I, I just thought he was a fantastic guy, like completely unique and out of place in in the NBA in a lot of ways and just didn't care. Just did his own thing. Yeah, I, I loved that guy. I haven't seen him in, in years. He was really a good friend of the guys in life. But I, I loved hanging out with him. He was crazy. At Counting Crows, countingcrows.com. The tour, it's almost 60 dates. I will be at the one here. You're playing at the Opry House, which is super cool. But basically every city we're in, you're in. Really been cool to sit with you. I really appreciate the time. Thank you. Like this has been, you know, I mean, I might have peed a little. I'm just saying it. It's okay. Yeah. You know, it's a, yeah. <laughs> the last few drops are for the underwear. You know, just yes. <laughs> uh, ever had to be put alphabetical and stood in line next to Fred Durst. I don't know if I stood in line. I mean, I knew Fred back then. But Duritz, Durst. Yeah, you'd in think. In class, you guys would be called right after each I'd other. would be right in front of him. Okay, there it is. Yeah. Best question I had. <laughs> great. Waited all night for that one. All right, you guys, go uh, <laughs> check out the tour, Counting Crows, countingcrows.com. Adam, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for listening to a BobbyCast production. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacova's is your stop before attending your next concert. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tacova's has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink, shop new styles. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tacovas.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. You can probably spell it. You probably know it. Tacovas.com. Find your new favorite pair of boots today. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.